This is Learn From Others, where we interview a cross-section of successful individuals so you can learn from their experiences, achievements, and even their mistakes. We ask four questions that will educate and inspire. Greg Stanley will be your guide as we join our guests on a journey from adolescent daydreaming to success in today's world. Join us on this adventure as we learn from others together. Well, welcome to Learn From Others, where we help others succeed by sharing success. I'm very excited to introduce our special guest, Patrick Kirchner. Well, Patrick, thank you for taking us on your career journey. Glad to be here, Greg. Well, before we find out what you're actually doing today, let's start at the very beginning. And if you would, please tell us what did you want to be when you grew up? You're you're probably going to hate the answer, but it's uh, anything I wanted to. And that was not my parents going, oh, Patrick, you can be anything you want to when you grow up. It was more of a, it was just more of how I approach things. Oh, I'm interested in this. I'm going to go do this and I'm going to be the best I can at it. And these other things over here don't really hold my interest. So I'm not even going to bother pursuing those paths. Well, that's not a bad answer at all. Well, what was, what were a few of those that you were, I don't know, hobbies that you thought you could do as a day job? I don't know. It, it, and you know, when I, I called my mother to ask her the question, mom, do you remember me ever saying what I wanted to be? And it was no, you know, I did a lot of reading. I would, uh, we had a set of encyclopedias when those things existed and I would literally come home from school and they were in a, a bookcase that my dad had built out of an old radio case that belonged to his grandparents. Wow. And I would pull out the encyclopedia and I would, I would pour through it. And then there was another, they used with the encyclopedias, they had these set of, of learning books and they had a lot of practical stuff in them. So I would learn how to do, you know, whatever page I turned to that day. Oh, I'm going to learn how to make a, make a pirate hat or a boat out of a newspaper. Right. So, so I spent a lot of time doing that, playing with Lincoln logs and girder and panel sets, and <laughs> I probably should have been a uh, an engineer or a lawyer. Well, speaking of which, what was one of your favorite subjects or hobbies in school? Was uh, reading one of your favorite things? Uh, I did well at English. I did uh, I did well at math up until algebra because it was all you know it was all very very straightforward and very common sense. Starting with trigonometry, I think it started to things started to go south. <laughs> right. um, and I, I think the in my entire educational career, the class that that was the absolute easiest for me was uh, was introduction to logic in in philosophy. It just wow. uh, yeah, that unfortunately took me a long time to get there. But I was a uh, I was an A minus B plus student all through uh, all through school, so nothing nothing terribly spectacular. Right. Right. You're an average student, but you had a lot of different interests, it sounds like. Yeah. Did you ever see the movie Rushmore with... Uh... Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, I had a, had a colleague who uh, who described, who used, used to call me Rushmore from time to time. It's, okay, what'd you do today, Rushmore? <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, with all these different interests, what was your first actual job? The first job was one I would not recommend to anyone. I had... Uh, my dad had wanted me to work at a hardware store up at the corner. And, uh, you know, so I went up, uh, one week, rode my bike up there at the end of eighth grade and, and applied for the job. And the manager told me, well, you know, we just, we just filled it with someone. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep our eye open for you. So, okay. So I end up caddying that summer. I get roped into that thing with some friends from eighth grade. And I end up being the only one who follows through with it. And two weeks into caddying, I'm in the hardware store getting something for my dad. And Bruce goes, 
hey, that guy didn't work out. We got a slot open for you if you're interested. And I'm like, well, you know, I just committed to Plum Hollow Golf Club. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to let them down. <laughs> Which is a, just a terrible decision. It was a miserable summer. And I started working at the hardware store the next summer and worked there for five years until uh, finished my first year of college and then went in the Marine Corps. Now, I would have thought caddying would have been an awesome job and a lot of folks dream jobs. Why did you not take to it? Uh, it was just, it, it was miserable. It was long days being kind of the, one of the younger guys when most of the caddies are a little older and that, you know, that age Delta is huge when you're a teenager. I just did not. Uh, oh, and when you're the junior caddy, you get the biggest bags and the worst tippers. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the ones that have a little more seniority get preferential treatment when it comes to picking out their uh, customers, I would take it. <laughs> exactly. Well, cool. Well, now tell us, what do you do today? Uh, well, I retired from the Marine Corps, did 31 years there. I am a voice actor now. Very interesting. So if you would, take us from that moment in the Marine Corps when you joined up, when you enlisted, to your career path through the Marine Corps, and then how you got into voice acting, because that's a pretty fascinating transition. It, you know, and it's something that I had wanted to do for a long time. So, uh, like, like many people who end up going into the Marine Corps, uh, you know, got in a fight with my parents one day and say, damn it, I'm going down and enlisting in the Marine Corps. So I did and I tested well. And initially I was going in the reserves and they had at the time this Cat P program, which meant you went and drilled with the reserve unit uh, every, um, one weekend a month before you shipped off to boot camp. And I did that and I loved it. I had an absolute blast. And I went back to my recruiter, much to his dismay, and said, hey, I, don't, I, I want to go active duty. And uh, long story short, I did. I just lucked out to get uh, a jet engine mechanic job. Mm. So which, which in retrospect would have been, I, it just would have been anything in aviation. It was 6,600 6, field for an MOS. And that means could have been helicopters, could have been... Uh, and any kind of fixed wing aircraft, it didn't, right. it didn't really, I could have been, uh, loading, loading rockets onto, uh, onto Hueys. So I end up a jet engine mechanic on Harriers, which was, which was just fantastic. Had uh, brand new aircraft, had, uh, fantastic people that I, I worked with for that, uh, the first four years there. And, uh, we, in fact, uh, the group of us still stays in touch and we do reunions every couple of years. And oh, then, that's uh, really cool. Yeah. Oh, it is. I mean, those are. You know, you're, and you're at that age where you're making friends for life, really. I did that, and then one day, this guy named Lou Helena walks into the shop, and he goes, well, I just put my MESEP package in. And he said, MESEP, what's that? Oh, it's this commissioning program where uh, they pay for you to go to school. They don't. You pay for yourself, but they you know, they pay you as a sergeant while you're in school. Right. And then at the end, you come out as an officer. And I go, well, I'm going to go put my MESEP package in. So uh, I put the package in, applied to the University of Michigan, uh, the first year I did, I got accepted to Michigan, but didn't get accepted to the program because I was a little junior. And then the next year, uh, I got it and they shipped me off to, uh, shipped me off to Ann Arbor for three years to finish up my school and, uh, and then commissioned me. And when I did that, I became an air command and control officer, initially an air defense officer, which, uh, are the guys, if you, uh, are the guys that sit there and look at the radar scope and right. talk to the pilot and tell them where the bad guys are. That's how I ended up at Top Gun with one of your former guests, uh, Jello Aiello, and yep. I was on the staff there with him. So basically my job there was to take the handful of controller students that's in, th in every Top Gun class and teach them how to efficiently communicate 
what they're seeing on the radar scope to the fighters that are actually engaging those uh, those potential enemy aircraft up there. After that, I got selected to the next uh, service level school, which was uh, Amphibious Warfare School. It's a school for captains. I went down and had command at a reserve unit down in Virginia Beach, where I also ran the Toys for Tots program for Southeastern Virginia. Uh, it was a lot of work, but what a great organization, what a great program that is. Uh, went back to the next level of school, which is command and staff. Went to uh, back to Okinawa, Japan, which is where I first went as a lieutenant. And uh, my wife and I went over there and had a great tour as a uh, operations officer and executive officer. I did a uh, did a stint over in Iraq while I was there. After that, I came back and I got what was probably uh, the second really interesting job. Uh, every job I've had has been just fantastic and a growing experience. Top Gun was probably the the most experiential one where I grew and I learned a lot about uh, my job and myself. And then I got to work at the Pentagon for the director of net assessment, uh, who was Mr. Andy Marshall at the time. And uh, I was his Marine Corps military advisor. And we did strategic foresight and uh, looked at the deep future and what the world was going to be like in the next 15 to 30 years. Wow. And uh, then I had a I had a command tour down in Cherry Point and then came back up to Quantico and did strategic foresight for the Marine Corps for the last five years of my career and then retired in uh, in 17. So you just recapped a great, amazing military career. And where in this did you decide you wanted to explore being a voiceover actor? Did you have some folks that would say, well, you got a great voice? Everyone who ever got into voiceover had someone tell them at some point, hey, man, you got a great voice. You know, I grew up watching Bugs Bunny and and watching Saturday morning cartoons, and it would always make the voices and stuff, which a lot of kids do. But then uh, when Who Framed Roger Rabbit came out, I was stationed in Yuma, and I saw that, and I was like, oh, my God, this thing still exists, and I could do I could do cartoons one of these days. Uh, which isn't, it's still a goal. It's uh, it's kind of a lofty goal, but uh, for a, you know, 51 year old dude, that's a lofty goal uh, to, to just to get started in it. But the other thing that happened was when I was at the basic school in Quantico, there was going to be a change of command ceremony for the big headquarters down in, uh, down here in Quantico. And they needed a lieutenant to, to be the narrator. So uh, the lieutenant who's in charge of corralling us looks for volunteers. And I had taken theater voice in college for the purpose of eventually doing voiceovers. In fact, if you look at that note, my college notebook from uh, my first voice class, it says uh, lucrative career doing cartoon voiceovers is the first line. Right. And then line 10 is like the voice of James Earl Jones, which my instructor disabused me of that notion very quickly. (laughs) You want the voice of Patrick Kirchner, not the voice of James Earl Jones. Right. Right. So I got that gig to be the narrator for that ceremony. And this major who's in charge of the whole thing puts his hand on my shoulder and says, Lieutenant, you're going to find yourself getting called for every change of command, retirement ceremony, promotion and award ceremony. In fact, you're probably going to end up narrating your own retirement ceremony. Yeah, that's a quite a quite a compliment. <laughs> At another point, I had uh, I, I had taken a Harrier to an air show in, in uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan, and the guy who was doing the, you know, Approaching from the left, Captain Steve Sugar Kane in the AV-8B Harrier Jump Jet. I went over and talked to that guy. I'm like, man, you got a great voice. Clearly, he was a, a local disc jockey. 
who was right. who was doing that on the side. But he looks up at me and goes, "You got a nice set of pipes yourself, son." I'm like, gee, really, <laughs> Mister? <laughs> wow. So, how many? How much did you? Would you say you performed, or how many gigs did you have prior to getting out of the military? Annually, I think for the last twenty years, I probably did fifteen Marine Corps birthday balls. Just a, a bunch of change of command ceremonies until I became a lieutenant colonel. And then once you once you hit that spot, they're like, no, nah, we got someone junior who's going to do it. So just just a bunch of what we now would call voice of God or live event announcing. And then how that transition happened was, again, I was doing strategic foresight, uh, which those jobs on the outside are not very easy to come by because those teams are very small. Uh, they tend to be a luxury for larger corporations. And they're, 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 they're kind of insular. So you don't see them advertise that often. Uh, but I had interviewed for one with general motors and was waiting for the results of that and didn't have a great feeling on it because, uh, it was, you know, beginning of June and the guy said, uh, well, all right. Um, you know, it turns out that Bob, the guy who's leaving is going to retire, you know, and be gone by the end of the month and we can't really onboard anybody until the 15th of July. Because as you probably know, the automakers all shut down for the first two weeks of, of July in order to switch the factories over for the, for the next year's models, right? Right. And, uh, and I'm just thinking, well, why did you interview me? But HR got that, uh, hey, we inter- interviewed a vet, kind of checking the box. So I'm sitting there on the couch thinking about this, and my wife goes, hey, I've got this coupon for this seminar next week on on uh, voiceovers and you've been talking about this as long as I've known you, you need to go to this. So my wife's prompting, uh, I went and took my first voiceover class. Now, how long ago was that? That was about a year and a half ago. Okay. So you took the voiceover class and how did that go? Cause it had to be a whole new industry you're trying to break into obviously. And that's, that's kind of the weird thing about it. It is a new industry and you're kind of jumping into the deep end of the pool. And unfortunately that was a demo mill which are people that you do get training out of it. Uh, Actually, real quick, if you would, because some of our listeners are students, tell us what a demo mill is. A demo mill is someone who will promise you, yeah, I will, you know, you'll get, you'll get coaching. I'm going to give you six weeks coaching. We'll we'll do an hour a week over the phone. And then at the end of that, we're going to record a demo and we'll produce a demo for you. And, and this can be yours for, Hey, check out the price. It's only going to be four grand. But right. at the end of the month, it goes up to five grand. Special deal for you guys today, thirty five hundred. But you got to sign by tomorrow, right? Uh, so that's that's a demo mill. You're gonna get coaching with whatever random coach they happen to have that day. You're gonna get a demo, but it's not gonna be high quality, and it's not gonna get you any work. So, uh, so, so having gone through that, the the. I don't regret, and I got a good deal on the price anyways. I didn't pay 3500 Having gone through that, that really exposed me to the community. And then I was fortunate enough, fortunate enough, easy for me to say, I'm a professional voice actor. <laughs> I was fortunate enough to find the right people in the community who help you avoid that stuff. And in fact, I, I published a few articles earlier in uh, February on how to avoid uh, demo mills, you know, how to get into voiceover without losing your shirt. Right. So it sounds like you did the demo mill. It was a mistake, but not too costly of a mistake. So what was your next step after that? And how did you secure your first voiceover work? The next step after that was actually finding, you know, really in, in voice actor, in voice, being a voice actor, it's a little V and a big A. 
And just because mm. you have a, a great voice doesn't mean you can be a decent actor because you're, regardless of the copy that you're delivering, you're selling something to someone. Right. Uh, you may be selling them on a medical procedure that you're explaining to doctors. Okay. You may be selling them a new car if it's commercial or you know, trust, trust my bank. Whatever it is, you, you have to become the salesperson for it. You have to connect with the copy and then connect with the listener. And the easiest way to do that is through acting and through imagining that you are communicating with one person who's just on the other side of the microphone. Right. So yep. the hardest part for me was not, you know, it was the exact opposite of what I was doing with the live event stuff, which is, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the change of command ceremony where Brigadier General Karamarkovich will turn over to. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So, so it was really bringing that in and picking one person in your mind and communicating it to him. And I, and I got that through then joining the actor center in Washington, DC and taking some improv classes and taking dialect classes and acting classes and, and, and other voiceover intensives and then finding a meetup group and getting good recommendations through the voiceover meetup meetup group going to my first voiceover convention last fall, which was just an absolute blast. It was 104 people who were all friendly, outgoing, supportive, want to get you to the right people and want everybody wanted each other to be successful. It's really right. a fantastic community. Uh, through them, I found my current coach who is a, uh, He's a world-class coach. He's got uh, 17 Society of VoiceOver Arts Awards, and he's working on more. And hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we, have, we have fantastic results with that, and uh, I will have new demos completed by mid-May. Wow. Okay. Now, that was a great walkthrough as far as how you got to where you are today. As a reminder, you can check out all previous episodes at learnfromothers.org. And if you are an educator or a student, you can search for podcasts by Career Cluster, and additional resources are under the Resource tab. So we learned what you wanted to be when you grew up, which was a bunch of different things. <laughs> and we learned what you do today, which is being a voiceover actor. So looking back at that 31-year military career and what you're doing today, if you could do it all over again, what would you do differently? I think the only thing that I would do differently was really try to connect with more of my colleagues on a personal level. Right. Because at the, at the end of the day, one of the best pieces of advice I got about the Marine Corps, and really this goes to any industry, at the end of the day, it's a people business. Right. I made lifelong friends, but those, those relationships all need to be more than, all need to be more than Facebook deep. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. No, that's great advice. Well, let's make the assumption that someone in our audience wants to do what you do to become a voiceover actor. What advice would you give them? And what is the typical career path? Is there one? I don't think there's a typical career path for a voiceover. There's a, there's a typical correct career path to failure, which is what I described, which is going to a demo mill, you know, going to one of those adult learning classes, having them explain, you know, hey, here's, here's how the industry works. Here's, you know, you can make six figures in a year and, and all you need is a demo. But at the other end of that demo is a lot of hard work. It's, it's a lot of marketing. You're, you're an entrepreneur. I'm actually, I'm the, I'm the CEO and owner of Fox Pro Pat LLC. So right. I had to start a company, you know, as a, as an entrepreneur, you're responsible for everything, uh, uh, marketing, business development, recording, editing, finance, payroll, brand development, strategy, long, uh, you know, long range, medium range, short term goals. Someone who wants to get into it, 
I would tell them to ask a lot of questions to someone who is not trying to sell them something first and then go back and do more homework. And before you spend a dime, talk to that person again and go, this is what I found out. And this is where I think I should make my investments. You can do it backwards. You know, people want to start out by buying a bunch an expensive microphone and a bunch of equipment and then go, okay, I'm ready to do voiceovers. And really it starts with the, it starts with the training and the coaching and then you get the equipment and then you record the demo and you do that after you have a business plan. You have to have your own business. It sounds like to be a voiceover artist. Is that pretty standard? Yes. Yeah. So you're either a sole proprietor or you, or you form a company and it's, it's going to depend on what your, what your state is. And, uh, if you talk to your bail team, your banker, accounter, uh, banker, mm-hmm. accountant, insurance, insurance is the I, you know, what do I need a rider for? I uh, talked to my home insurance guy. Do I need a rider for my equipment because I'm doing a home office and then your lawyer, of course. So, so those people, mostly your accountant is going to tell you whether or not it's a good idea to become an LLC or form some kind of corporate entity in order to uh, in order to have your business. And then what is a typical demo reel? What's that typically like? A demo reel is traditionally it's a 60 to 90 minute recording with a bunch of pieces spliced together quickly that are either they're in a particular genre. So it, it always used to be you needed two to get started. One is a commercial demo which has a bunch of examples of you giving commercials. It, it could be real company. It could be a fake company. If you use a real company, you're probably not using their copyrighted material, right? Right. And then a right. narrative demo. Okay, that's everything else. It's audio books. It's, um, uh, it's corporate narration. It's e-learning. It's explainer videos. And, and what's happened over the last few years in the, in the industry is that those have kind of broken apart. Like even commercial, if you're going to do automotive commercials, well, that's a separate demo. So here's, here's 60 seconds of Pat Kirchner doing automotive, automotive commercials. And they have specific coaches who will, who will get you ready to do that sort of demo animation or character used, you know, would require a different, a different demo animation characters and video game characters would require different demos. Right. Okay. I could see that a lot of different inflection and acting you would have to do as a part of that. Right. Yeah. And there's, there's, you know, way there's different rules for delivering a commercial script than there are for delivering animation copy. Right. And that's, I mean, that's why I hire a coach, an experienced coach who can help you learn those things. Now, what advice would you give someone who is currently in a college university or trade school? If the best, best college advice I ever got was, uh, was of course from the university who wanted to keep me there as long as possible. If you look through the course <laughs> catalog and you find something that, you know, that just looks interesting to you and you never would have taken it, like I've never taken a geology course before, but oceans and moons looks pretty darn cool. Take, right, right. Take the course because you never know what you're going to discover. Right. Yep. Explore your interests while you can. Yeah. Starting my senior year at college, I'm like, oh my God, I've only got nine months left of this. Right. And I really started to, you know, appreciate where I was in that academic environment. I really loved it. Well, as with most journeys, success largely depends on reliable transportation. And I'm a huge car enthusiast. And we talked a little bit earlier. You are as well. So if you would, please repeat the story for me about your first car. You want the whole story? <laughs> well, maybe a condensed version. What yeah, was your first car? <laughs> my, my first car was technically my mom's 77 Maverick. And then the first one that I bought was an 85 Escort. 
Yep. And after that, I sold that. Uh, I went out on uh, on a on a little aircraft carrier out in the Western Pacific, <laughs> and I came back and I found a '67 Mustang Fastback, and I have had that car since 1990. I've restored it twice and still have it sitting out in the garage. That's awesome, because I'm a huge Mustang fan as well, so that's great. Well, what is your dream car? A 67 Mustang Fastback that's sitting out in my garage right now. (laughs) That's awesome. Not many people can say they actually have their dream car, so that's great that you were able to do that. Well, one perk to some jobs is a company car. So if I had all the money in the world, I'd love to buy you a cool company car based on your job, and I tried to find something kind of cool and classic And it'll make a lot of sense. So what I picked for you was the 1951 fabulous Hudson Hornet. Are you familiar with that car? I am. That's that's awesome. Oh, good. (laughs) I would love love that car. (laughs) Can you guess why I picked that car? Because it's very unique. It's very unique, and it was that car was voiced by Paul Newman in the movie Cars. (laughs) That's terrific. That's the one I could get that went with a voiceover actor, and that was kind of the coolest one. That thing won something crazy, like, let me see, I've got it right here. Let's see, that won 34 stock car events, including seven NASCAR races in 1951. So if you watch the Cars movie again, the number 51 is on the side of the car. That's his racing number, and it's to commemorate that year that they really were introduced to NASCAR and blew it away. So that's the car I would pick for you if I had all the money in the world. Oh, that's great. That's hopefully, awesome. hopefully that, uh, that, that continues to ring true. I will, yeah. uh, I'll continue <laughs> growing my business and, uh, I'll blow away all the competition. There we go. I love it. Well, thank you so much for taking us on your career journey today. What's the best way our listeners to learn more about you and your business? They can find me on LinkedIn, Patrick Kirchner, and they can find me at VoxProPat, V-O-X-P-R-O-P-A-T dot com. Awesome. Well, thank you for uh, your time today, Patrick. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for listening to Learn From Others, where we help others succeed by sharing success. Where will our next adventure take us? Subscribe to find out. If you know of someone who has a cool career story or occupation, contact Greg through Instagram at Greg Stanley LFO. That's G-R-E-G-S-T-A-N-L-E-Y-L-F-O. And we will see you soon as we learn from others together.